Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 168, and today's guest is BC Krishna, serial entrepreneur and current founder and CEO of Sentime. A common question that often arises is whether or not entrepreneurship is a skill that you are born with, or is it something that you can be taught? Well, based on the number of successful companies that BC has built, it's obvious that he was born to be an entrepreneur. For someone with his level of success, he is also extremely humble, and that is a skill that can't really be taught. BC started his first company in 1996. It was a company called Future Tense that revolutionized the digital publishing industry on the web. It was a first-generation content management system. Since then, he started multiple companies across other domains like security and accounts payable automation. He's now working on his fourth startup called Sentime, a stealth mode startup that is tackling another massive multi-billion dollar opportunity. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like why BC keeps building companies, all the details on Future Tense and its acquisition by Open Market, his experience as an entrepreneur in residence at Greylock, the background story and all the details on Memento and Mineral Tree, a glimpse into his latest startup, when a founder should consider exiting from a company, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, have you checked out our YouTube channel? It is loaded with lots and lots of great content from our interviews with founders, executives, and investors. You'll find lots of advice shared from these podcast interviews, plus you'll find lots of great information from our popular Inside and CXO Briefing series. Go to youtube.com backslash VentureFizz to check it out and make sure you subscribe. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with BC. BC, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, I'm excited to talk because uh, there's a lot to cover. You've built multiple, multiple, multiple companies. Um, so I actually thought that would be a good starting point for the podcast discussion. So um, you're a serial entrepreneur at its most truest sense. I mean, you've started multiple companies, multiple exits. Um, so why do you keep building companies? You know, it's it's a creative process. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, uh, that is what is so interesting to me about like starting companies is, um, is creation. And, uh, you know, in that sense, it's not really that different from a person who, you know, makes a painting or writes a book. Um, it's a creative process. It's very fulfilling. It's very uh, much a, a self-discovery process as well. You know, you're learning about, you know, yourself as you do this, you're learning about uh, a problem as you do this, and you're hopefully solving a problem as well. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's uh, one thing to say, why do you start a company? But you also have so many things that go into it, right? You have to have the opportunity to do so. You have to have teams around you that are willing to, you know, walk through walls with you. Um, you know, all that is, you know, a big part of it. You're ha- you're willing, you, you have to have customers that trust you enough to buy the stuff that you're making and use it and derive value from it and so forth. But, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it's really quite, um, quite a complicated process and, and it's kind of probably more important than anything else is the fun. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a great analogy. And I mean, we're going to talk about this too, as far as actually building the company, which, yeah, it's a very complicated process and scaling it and getting to the point where there's, you know, value created. Well, let's rewind the clock on, on your background. So, uh, so where did you grow up and what, what were you like as a child? 
<laughs> what was I like as a child? Um, you know, I grew up in, in India. Um, I grew up in, I was born in uh, a city that's now uh, called Chennai. Uh, and I grew up, you know, a few different cities. My dad worked for the Indian government. Uh, and so he was sort of transferred around a lot. And so I grew up in India. I studied, I had my undergraduate education in India. I worked for a few years in India and then we moved to the U.S. My wife and I moved to the U.S. Um, in the late, uh, in the late 80s. Um, and so, um, you know, as a child, I, you know, I was, you know, I guess like I was like any other child, I suppose. I, there's nothing, you know, <laughs> remarkable about my life. Uh, I just, you know, I, I, I can't say that I was like, you know, smart or anything like that. I was just an average person. But did you always gravitate towards computers? When did you start to get involved with more on the technical side? Uh, no, I, you know, no, I, I don't think that, I don't really think of myself as sort of a technical person, really. I, uh, I think of, a, of myself as a curious person. Uh, and I was curious about computers. I'm curious about things that um, are new. Um, you know, I'm also a Luddite. I have a healthy disrespect for technology. Uh, and, um, so, you know, I, you know, I took a course in computers in college and I did well. Uh, I actually went to college to study biology. Um, and I still, you know, I feel, I still think of myself as a, as a failed medical student, um, which was really my first passion. Um, you know, but I, I, I took a course in computers. I liked it. I, you know, did well in it. Um, and so that's sort of, you know, what, what I, you know, ended up doing in life. And then you went on to MIT to, to study there. So what did you study at MIT? Absolutely. I, I think the, the MIT thing was not so much about technology, but, you know, it was a very unique time, you know, in the, the, in the, in the early 90s when, um, you know, we're starting to see this confluence of, you know, technology and design and entertainment and media and high speed internet and so on and so forth. All that sort of, you know, came together. And the Media Lab, uh, which was sort of founded around that time, basically brought all that together uh, in the form of, you know, a field of study, uh, visual studies. And so I was attracted uh, to the lab. And in particular, uh, there was a person there by the name of Muriel Cooper, uh, who was a book designer, uh, who also thought very deeply about the application of technology to design. And I studied under Muriel Cooper, uh, and it was a, just an amazing experience, a transformative experience for me. But it wasn't so much about technology, it was about design. So what did you do after MIT? What was like the you know, first jobs? Well, I uh, actually took a two-year sabbatical to go back to MIT. And when I left, I, uh, when I graduated, I went back to digital, where I was working at the time. Got it. Okay. Amazing company. Uh, and I went back to digital. I spent a little, a few more months before I left to start Future Tense. That's what I did. All right. Well, let's talk about Future Tense. So this is what year? Just to give context here. 1996. <laughs> okay. So the internet was starting to take shape there. It wasn't in full blown consumer adoption, but it was definitely, you know, the, the early blocks have been formed by then. Oh, well, so very much so. I mean, I think that Netscape was, you know, um, on a tear. Uh, you had the sort of the first companies on the East Coast and the West Coast um, starting to become, you know, what people call unicorns. Uh, so very much so. I mean, the infrastructure was being laid down. It was very clear that this was going to be a thing. Uh, 
Future Tense was about helping people publish on the web. You know, seems obvious now, but you know, when we started Future Tense, it was one of the first content management companies, uh, helping people. At the time, you know, people were building web pages, uh, and we thought, hey, listen, if you're going to publish, if you're a publisher like the Washington Post, which is a, one of our first customers, uh, if you're going to publish at scale, then you need infrastructure that helps you manage a publishing process and manages manage the pages, the often the personalized dynamic pages that can be served at scale to millions of people. And that was what Future Tense did. Um, so, so we were very fortunate that we, you know, def have, were helped define that category, content management. Uh, and the first customers were the first people that understood content on the web. And those were newspapers, Washington Post, the New York Times, uh, the Financial Times, the Age in Australia, the Sydney Morning Herald, some of the major publishing brands uh, that were publishing in the web, uh, in print at the time used the Future Tense uh, system to publish on the web. Now, how did you know this was an issue that could be solved through creating, you know, first generation CMS? Uh, didn't know. I mean, you <laughs> said like, it, you know, it's really weird. Sometimes it's like, you know, it's, you know, it's, it seems obvious that it should be this way. And you don't know that it's sort of, you know, even a problem because it's not a problem. Nobody tells you this is a problem, but it feels like, how can you do it any other way? How can you sort of continue to do this print thing when you've got people basically adopting the web in massive quantities and have this thirst to absorb content electronically? You need some infrastructure. Well, what does that infrastructure look like? Well, let's design it. You know, let's make some mistakes in so doing. Let's talk to people who might have some views on what it should look like. Let's go through two or three revisions before we settle on what the design language needs to be for that. And did you, did you raise funding for this company? We did. And what was that process like then? Very different. I mean, you know, uh, you know at some level, it's, it's different. At some level, it's the same. You know, the basic elements of raising capital are really the same. Right, which is, you know, is it a large problem? Are people willing to buy it? Are you the guy that's going to make it happen? Do you have the chops to sort of last through the many years and the many ups and downs that it takes to sort of, you know, come out whole on the other side? You know, all of that is sort of very much the same. Um, obviously, the scale is different. I mean, at the time, uh, Greylock uh, led the Series A for us back in the day. And at the time, Greylock was a obviously already a well-established and venerable sort of venture firm. And there they invested out of a fund that was $175 million. It was massive, you know, in, in those days. And so um, it was, and then Fidelity invested, Atlas Venture invested, uh, Bank Boston invested. Uh, there's a few different people that sort of all put money into the company. Um, but the process is at some level the same. The scale is different the expectations and the um, are much higher. Um, you know, obviously there's an expectation. Um, you obviously have a very different scale and very different set of expectations when you raise a, a larger amount of capital. Um, but still there's, there's sort of still, you know, you're really going after multi-billion dollar markets even, even then. And it was a very different time because this was on-premise software, right? Like this is... It was. Um, it was. It was on-premise software. There was no such thing as the cloud. Uh, it was very much of a professional services type of model. 
where you you know you had software that you installed and you customized and you know you you know you took you know four-legged sales model to sell to people and the usual stuff i mean you know still exists to some degree today but you know that that's the way it was yeah and then just like curious how much did you end up raising for the company in your a round and then in total before the acquisition yeah total was 11 and a half million wow yeah. <laughs> so that's series a sometimes large seed round these days <laughs> well our series a was one 1.25 million wow okay and uh we we raised a total of 11 and a half million we sold the company for 125 million um and uh um, yeah i mean that was i mean you sold on the promise of you know future revenue and uh it was fun it was really a lot of fun it was lit i mean first time through and i had you had no idea i mean you know when you do it the second time and the third time you sort of have an idea right (laughs) but the first time through it's like oh my god you know what is this thing right i mean you sort of start this thing and you say like oh it's pretty easy you know we do some stuff and you get some money and you go sell it and you have you can't you can't really be prepared for all of the ups and downs in this process it just really can't uh, rejection is just really hard to kind of really fathom at that stage right? you know mm-hmm. you don't expect to be rejected like that you know <laughs> you know it's just rejection is just really hard to deal with and mm-hmm. uh, you know when you're when you, you ha- and it's really difficult to be prepared now i think a little bit people are you know more prepared or you're sort of people have an expectation and therefore you're better prepared uh, but you know, in those days it was just really, it's really hard. So you mentioned you were acquired. So that was by open market in 1999, yep. uh, which, you know, open market, that's a, you know, a, a di- different discussion for, for a podcast because, uh, you know, that company has done a lot in terms of actually creating the foundation of e-commerce. No question. I mean, I think there were some fundamental things that e-commerce did. I mean, that open market did, uh, you know, they had the shopping cart patent. Uh, that's a whole, you know, right, it's a different podcast, multiple podcasts for another time. Uh, but, you know, yes, we were acquired by open market and um, we folded the company into open market. Um, and, uh, you know, the future tense business suddenly kind of exploded because of exploded in a good way. I mean, grew Right. So because, uh, you know, we had a product that had a market and but future tense itself didn't really have sales and marketing. But open market had this amazingly well-developed footprint of salespeople, enterprise salespeople, and great salespeople, particularly overseas. So great people here in the United States, but amazing people overseas. And so, you know, we just went 20x revenue in one year. Wow. From, you know, the future tense business went from two and a half million to 40 million in one year. Amazing. And, uh, it was just really amazing to watch. And it was all on the back of some amazing enterprise salespeople. Uh, they knew exactly what to sell. They knew how to sell it. Uh, they, were able to, they were able to basically drive and deliver that value to customers in a way that we never knew how to do. Now, I read somewhere, and I don't know how recent that material was that I read, but it, I read somewhere that it is still lives on, the technology still lives on today where it's part of Oracle's web center content management. I don't know if that's still today today or if that was a while back today. I think so, but I'm not sure. You know, it's really funny because we had a sort of a, a, a URL that, that was very unique. Uh, there was a certain set of query strings and so forth that made up the URL that I still recognize. And every so often I see it. 
and I don't know if they're selling it. I don't know if it's still active or not. Uh, but yeah. yes, Web Center, Oracle Web Center content management or something is what I've heard as well. I have no idea whether it's alive, alive and today, today. But, you know, every mm -hmm. so often I'll see the URL and they're like, hey, yeah, I recognize that URL. That's fine. It's a weird thing, you know, but whatever it is, like, you know, 20 years later, that this thing is still sort of, you know, has a life. That's really cool. So then you went on to be an EIR at Greylock, which makes sense. They were an investor. There was a great exit for, e for Greylock. So they brought you in to hopefully think through your next idea. Yeah, I mean, Bill Kaiser uh, invested in, um, you know, in uh, Future Tense. Uh, Bill is an amazing guy. He was, I learned so much from him. And he's still a friend of mine. I think he's, he's a, just a great human being. And uh, he and he, um, you know, he, he he asked whether you know I would join, uh, you know, Greylock as an EIR. Uh, and again, you know, I had no idea what it meant. Uh, what does an EIR do? You sit in a room and think up ideas. What do you do? You, know, do you I just had I, I just had an amazing experience at, at Greylock. I learned so much about like how venture capitalists think, and in particular how great venture capital firms function. What is the culture? of the firm how does that culture then permeate into the companies that they fund how do they how do they really work with entrepreneurs to create and build value it was just an amazing experience uh, i don't think i was successful as an eir uh, because um you know i mean the the intent i guess the fantasy was that somehow like you know some idea would be born and, and you know grillock would sort of invest in it and you know something would happen but I don't think I knew what to do at the time, and I'm not really sure that you know you can sort of force something to happen uh, in a in a window like that because uh, you can't be an EIR forever, uh, and so you know so um, yeah so I was there for about ten months, uh, and and I, I learned a lot through that process. I'm eternally grateful to to Bill and the entire Greylock team for that. Yep. Well, it must be also really interesting to be able to see so many other founders coming in because you're usually part as an EIR, you're, you're hearing the pitches and ha helping vet deals. So that must be good to see what other entrepreneurs are doing and just shape, you know, lessons learned from others. Yeah, I, I don't know if I vetted any deals, but I certainly was a fly on the wall. Um, and that was a tremendous opportunity. I, uh, you know, certainly was able to participate in some of the conversations and, and hear, you know, the other side of the, the equation. Definitely. It was amazing. It was really, I learned a lot. All right. Let's talk about the, the, the next company, Memento. So how did that all come about? The idea and formation of that company? Weirdly. Um, you know, it was not, I would say, a very good process to, again, it started out sort of with this somewhat artificial thing that says, got to start a company, right? And so what's the idea? Well, let's come up with an idea. It was just really weird the way it started. You know, we sort of a bunch of us sat down in a room and said, like, you know, let's map out the universe. What are all the businesses out there? You know, let's look at this segment. Well, what problems exist in this segment? Let's go after it and see whether or not we can manufacture something that solves a problem in this segment. It didn't work. You know, we came up with <laughs> it. It's just really weird. And you can't, I don't, at least other people can perhaps. For me, that's not the process, right? It doesn't, it didn't really kind of, you know, for, for many people, I think you can engineer an outcome. Uh, you know, but for us, what we tried to do was to engineer an outcome uh, to say that, hey, this is a problem worth solving. Let's go solve it. And we actually came up with, you know, something of a hypothesis as to what problem we were trying to solve. 
And it just turned out that, you know, nobody was really interested in, in that thing. And so, um, but the real issue here is the real approach here, the real sort of way to do it is to talk to customers. It's always the case that they will tell you what problems they have. So after spending, you know, several months trying to engineer an outcome with Memento, we had the sort of basic elements of what seemed like a problem worth solving. And I went out and talked to a bunch of people. One of them was Citizens Bank. And the person, uh, Jim Mignon, who was the chief security officer at the time at Citizens Bank, said like, hey, you know, this thing that you're talking about could potentially be applied to identify uh, cases of employee fraud. And so would you be interested in sort of working with us to take your sort of solution and build an employee fraud application? And it was like, okay, well, let's do it, right? And, you know, and so basically that's how Memento got started. You know, our sort of calling card was uh, to help banks identify cases of internal fraud, employee fraud. And so looking at, you know, huge quantities of transaction data, you know, obviously the premise is a simple one, right? You have employees that have access to this extremely valuable fount of information and are they well-behaved? How do you know that these people who have access, most of them are obviously, the vast majority of them are, you know, honorable and well-behaved and so on and so forth. But as with anything, there's a, <laughs> there's a small percentage of people that take advantage of the entitlements that they have. And so are you watching them? Are you able to not just tell them about the policies and procedures? You know, you, should, you shall not do this, but then, you know, what are you doing to make sure that they are monitoring them to ensure that they shall not do that? And so that's what sort of the premise was behind Memento. So, and then we expanded from there to add a few different modules uh, associated with sort of different types of fraud. So was it detecting like a end user, like their, what they were doing as far as what apps they were logging into and what they were doing in those apps, kind of a digital footprint that would detect a flag if somebody was doing something they shouldn't be doing? Yeah, basically there were um, obviously anytime you use an application that leaves behind some kind of a footprint, a log file, you know, some transaction data. And the idea is to look at the aggregated logs, aggregated transaction data use timestamps to piece together the flow that a particular user might be taking and then build signatures, scenarios associated with bad behavior and then surface those bad behaviors so that you can say, well, such a sequence of actions, such a sequence of actions by person is strong evidence of bad behavior. Are they entitled to do that? So for example, right, if you are a, you know, if you're an employee at a bank, and you're spending your entire afternoon looking up accounts, hundreds of, th I mean, you you're entitled to look up an account. That's your job, right? Um, but are you doing excessively? Are you doing it, you know, so that you're looking up a thousand accounts, you know, over the course of the next two hours? That's bad. Uh, now, is it, is, it, is it egregiously bad? Is it, you know, something that you should not be doing? Uh, is that something that um, you can sort of identify as, a, as an anomaly and, you know, surface? That's the sort of stuff that, you know, Memento did. And it is interesting because the, the insider threats are definitely the things that I, I just remember hearing in the retail industry, the shoplifting. Yes, consumers come in and shoplift, but it's the people that are actually working for you that are potentially the bigger threat. 
Yeah, I mean it is. It's a. It's a. Uh, there are you know there are people who claim that five. There's five percent of a company's revenue is lost to insider theft, insider insider fraud. You know, I don't. I don't know that. That number seems very large, um, and it certainly wasn't our experience. But look, it's the kind of thing that you know should be monitored. In uh, also, it should be done in a way that's very sensitive to the uh, vast majority of the people that are well behaved. You know, so that people know that they're being watched, um, but they also know why they're being watched, right? So that it doesn't feel like it's Big Brother or sort of we're trying somehow trying to like mistrust you, right? So building the company this time around, like what what do you think you learned and were able to do maybe more efficient, like raising capital easier because you already had like a, a win under your belt or uh, being able to scale or or hire? Like what do you think you learned that you're able to apply the second time around that helped? I think we had a much better um, approach to product development. I think uh, you know had a much clearer view into you know what the product process was, the product management, the product development process was. We had a much clearer view into what the pieces are that we need to be put together to solve a uh, the, solve the problem, uh, and a much better sense for who to hire, when to hire. Uh, you know, also much better sense for how much, how long the capital lasted. I mean, everything was different, right? I mean, I think you look at all of the different operational elements of building a company, you know, whether it's sales, marketing, hiring, HR, finance. I'm not saying that we figured it all out, but you're just much better prepared to deal with all of those things. And that, but it did start with uh, the product development process, knowing to talk to customers first. And it scaled. So at what point did you get it to prior to the acquisition? I'm probably not going to share revenues, but, you know, it was in the just about sort of cross double digits uh, specific, you know, I don't remember actually exactly how much it was. Uh, but yeah, I mean, look, it was a tough business. I think selling security and fraud is, is hard. Uh, it's hard because people don't really believe that there's a problem. And so that's the sort of the crux of the challenge. Well, and it was, I mean, you know, cybersecurity and fraud and, you know, that's not saying it's an easy sale now, but it's a lot more visible where if you had momentum, like cause this was 2003 when you started the company, right? So security and cybersecurity wasn't as much of a, you know, headline grabber. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I think there's a big difference between fraud detection and cybersecurity. Uh, and uh, selling uh, selling cybersecurity is, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's a lot easier than selling fraud detection. The mm-hmm. people that you're selling to are very different you know, than the people who, you're not selling to IT, you're selling to corporate security. Mm-hmm. Uh, corporate security folks are not technology savvy. Uh, they're not, uh, you know, they're not necessarily sort of looking at this as a technical problem. They're looking at it as a process problem. Uh, and, and, and fraud detection is sort of a weird thing in the sense that it's the only business I know that has a negative ROI if you're successful. Um, and so, you know, there's an intense amount of pressure to actually disinvest once you've solved the problem. And so, um, it's a weird business. And, you know, I think that that's probably the biggest lesson I learned in that business is we didn't size the market properly. We didn't have a good go to market approach. We missed the boat on cybersecurity. We really did. I mean, I think rather than look at, look, look at it as a fraud problem selling to corporate security, 
we should have enhanced the solution to look at sort of it as an IT problem as well and sell to the IS folks rather than the corporate security folks. Uh, and I think that uh, that was sort of a, you know, a big challenge. We didn't, we didn't prob- properly look at the, the market opportunity. Well, uh, there was, the company was acquired by FIS. Um, and then did you take some time off in between the next company or did you, like, did you just jump right back in it? <laughs> oh, no, I jumped right back in, you know, <laughs> sort of you know, a couple, three months off and, you know, and then, then sort of, you know, I was right in it. All right. Well, let's talk about Mineral Tree, which is still a company that's very vibrant today and, um, you know, solving a really interesting problem that um, I didn't realize it was $125 trillion are exchanged every year. 65% of that is still done by a paper check, which is just, when you hear that number, it's just a staggering, staggering statistic. Um, so Mineral Tree is obviously solving this problem. So how did the idea formulate of you know accounts payable being a an issue yeah well it didn't start out as an accounts payable problem i think uh, really i mean i was just coming off of memento which was a fraud detection security sort of you know piece of software and and i always say this like towards the end of my tenure at memento what we started to see was an increasing amount of what people now call business email compromise ach fraud right so essentially sort of um people being banks being defrauded, companies being defrauded of of funds from their bank account uh, through fraud by fraudsters, and the premise was a simple one. You know, I try to convince you either by planting malware on your computer or through some form of business email compromise uh, that you should transfer money to me as the fraudster. And so we started out with a very simple premise, which is that. We were providing software to banks to help them track patterns of fraud, but they were doing it after the fact. What if we were able to provide solutions to businesses that allowed them to originate payments in a more secure manner? So because businesses, I mean, banks don't have access to the attack surface, right? But if you're able to protect the attack surface and say, if you use this solution, then you know, guess what? You will not, um, you know, encounter this sort of fraud. I mean, the security problem, this, you know, embezzlement problem. Uh, and so, you know, um, that it started out as a sort of payment security uh, company. Again, learned a lot from the past sort of experience. And so the summer of 2011, we basically lashed together a bunch of interns and we made phone calls, cold called, um, hundreds of calls to people to say, hey, do you have this problem? And how much would you pay? Uh, are you aware of the fact that billions of dollars are being lost to, you know, to this form of fraud? And, you know, what emerged from that was, if, <laughs> I mean, look, I think the, the reality is that this it, painful as it is when it occurs, the percentage of people that are affected by business email compromise is pretty small. And so most people are still, still simply not aware of the fact that um, this is occurring. But the other element of it is that it's the sort of nature of the beast is that you're going to solve a problem. You're going to take the medicine when you have the fever. And so if you don't have a problem, you're not going to address it. If you're not aware of it, you're not going to solve it. Anyway, the feedback that we got was, you know, no, I don't have this problem. And I don't think I would pay a single penny, you know, to solve it. 
um, you know, if you give me something for free, sure, I'll take it. But, you know, I don't, I don't really see myself like that. And, and, and by the way, isn't my bank going to protect me anyway? It turns out that they're not, you know, and the banks basically are not required to protect business accounts in the same way that, you know, they're required to protect consumer accounts. But most businesses are not aware of that. And they just assume that that's the way it is. Uh, but what we did discover in the process was that, you know, it wasn't so much a security problem, but it was a simplicity problem. Payments were complicated, to your point. You know, it's still a lot of checks. You know, how can we streamline the process by which a payment is originated? And that was sort of the genesis of Mineral Tree. Started out as a payments company. You know, how do I originate a payment? Certainly safely, but how do I also originate a payment simply? I think the core, the, the feedback from that and, I hope entrepreneurs listening is, you know, here you are on your third company. You think, you know, you, you've got to figure it out. Like, you know, problem solution, you could have run off and built a company doing exactly what you set out to do. If you, if you never talked to the customers and figured out the real problem, you would have had a company that was, no one would pay money to, to solve that problem. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I mean, different people take different paths and, um, it really depends upon your proclivity. Um, my proclivity was to sort of really go down the path of solving this problem. You know, you might have like gone down a different path altogether to solve the payment security problem, come up with a different business model, come up with a you know different approach to say, hey, you know, guess what? People are saying they don't have the problem, but I'm going to try to convince them they have a problem. I, mean, I don't know. I, mm-hmm. I just, you know, life is not, you know, I wish I could tell you that we could run these control experiments where I say like, you know what, I'm going to run path A, which is this, and I'm going to run path B, which is this, and I'm going to pick one variable which I turn off here and one variable which I turn on, turn on there, and, you know, it doesn't work like that, right? So, unfortunately, time only runs in one direction. Uh, and so, it's just the way it turned out that, you know, happily for us, uh, you know, um, after a couple of more cranks of the, of the wheel, uh, we ended up in a place where um, it turns out that there's a sort of, you know, huge, massive, multi-billion-dollar opportunity to solve um, um, solve a very painful paper-based process, uh, which affects every company, which is accounts payable. And and it, the process was the key piece too, right? It was like saving on data entry and the approval process. Yeah, it's really funny because even though we started out as a payments company, and even though we had initial success, you know, getting some people to sort of address this. Uh, payments problem that you know that they had it felt to us that there was a bigger problem which is you know a precursor to payments which is invoice processing accounts payable i like to say consists of two separate but related problems one is the problem of capturing invoices and posting them to the general ledger and the second problem is one picking up those invoices and then paying them uh, those are two separate but related problems. And um, I think that you listen to customers, they tell you what you should do. And, you know, we listened and we discovered that the invoice processing part of the problem was as important, if not more so, uh, than the payment part of the problem. And so today what we have is not just mineral tree, there's some very fine companies uh, that, you know, have kind of, you know, really built solutions that, um, you know, that a modern day AP solution consists of both invoice processing as well as, as payment processing. Now, another trend that I've noticed here is you're building, uh, you know, companies that are almost slightly ahead of the market. Um, you know, cause FinTech wasn't like a thing that investors were running to like they do now. I mean, this when we started the company was 2011. Um, yet there's tremendous amount of capital going towards FinTech. 
Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting point because, um, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse to be slightly ahead of the market. Uh, you know, if you're slightly ahead of the market, then hey, you know, you're, you're hopefully trying to like establish a trend and something that allows you to have the first mover advantage. But the flip side of that is that you really have to evangelize and convince people that this problem that you're trying to solve, they actually have, you know, nobody was convinced that there was a content management problem. I cannot tell you how painful it was, you know, when I started Future Tense, it was incredibly bad, Keith. I mean, I cannot tell you how difficult it was, right? To convince people, this is like, but I've got, you know, front page, which is an HTML editor at the time. What more do I need? Okay. I mean, I'm building HTML pages. That's all the web is about, right? You know, it was just hard. And the only people that truly understood content were were newspapers. And I remember even in those days, I'd go out to sort of do our series B with, with investors and they would say like, but you're selling to newspapers. There's a total of 12 newspapers in the world. How big is this market, right? <laughs> so it's, it's kind of, the, it's a devil. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. Um, but I think it's back to like, you know, the question that you asked earlier. You just have to really be very clear. You have to have conviction that the problem you're solving is going to get solved in a fashion similar to the way in which you're presenting the solution, right? You might not have it perfect, right? But at least you know you're sort of 60, 70, 80% of the way there. And the rest of it will be something that the customer tells you what to do. You have to have conviction. If you don't have conviction, you won't get there. Now, you had a transition, like you're onto your next startup, right? So how do you know when's the right time to transition out of a company as, you know, as a founder or CEO? Like- sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's like, it's building a company is a team effort. And, uh, and that team is, is, um, is your management team, but it's also your board. And to a very great extent, you sort of depend upon the counsel of your board. Uh, and you have to have some degree of humility. Uh, you know, there are, you know, horses for courses, as they say, um, you know, and, and for me, it's like, you know, I know that I'm really good at going from zero to 10 million. Um, I have never tested my ability to go beyond 10 million. Maybe I'll be good. I don't know. Um, but uh, to me, like it was, it was like, look, I think that I'm very, very good at getting the company from zero to 10. I know how to do it. I can do it in my sleep. I don't want to sound arrogant about it, but I know how to do that. And that's what I'm really good at. Mm -hmm. uh, but to me, like, you know, in this particular, and every instance is different, but in this particular case, I had this hankering to go to something else. And we were very fortunate that we had, I think you've spoken to Micah, you know, we had a great um, person to lead the company. Uh, you know, we, we, we sort of, you know, were able to bring Micah on board in the summer of 2017, what year is 2018. Uh, and, uh, and then um, basically sort of, you know, the, the timing was right. We raised some capital. I wanted to go do this thing. Uh, Micah was sort of, you know, ready to hand it off. You know, creative process, you ask the question, you know, what does it mean, right? I mean, to me, it's about the creative process. I'm not saying that it gets less creative uh, once the company grows, but it's a different kind of creativity. Mm -hmm. You know, scaling requires a different kind of creativity, a different type of execution, a different type of operational skill. Um, and I just don't know whether I have it. I don't know if I have the desire to do it, but I know I can do this and that's why I want to do it. Well, I think that's another great lesson learned of that humility of understanding what your strengths are and then you know, either, I wouldn't call it a weakness, but understanding where maybe you're not interested in scaling it to that next level from 10 to 50. Yeah. 
I mean, it's a, it is, it could be a weakness. I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, <laughs> it doesn't Hard really, say that, but... <laughs> I mean, you know, look, if, not to use a metaphor here, but, uh, you know, but you play first base and, and you feel like, you know, you're great at it. And somebody asks you to go play the outfield. Can I do it? Maybe, but you know, I know I can do first base. So, you know, right. that's what I do. So. Yeah. No, and that definitely has, you know, my background recruiting those, these people that are really good from uh, X to Y. And then there's another team that comes in and hopefully gets it from Y to Z. And it's just kind of like a it's pretty common actually in the growth of the companies, you know, uh, in the growth of the company, it's very common to have, you know, and it's necessary at some level, right. Yeah. To have teams that take you to, it's, I think it's pretty rare to have the same team, you know, go from zero to, you know, 10 billion. Right. I mean, that just, I mean, I'm sure it happens, but I, mm -hmm. I don't think it's normal. So what are you up to now? Then the, the next company. Uh, you know, uh, it's another fintech company. Um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a stealth mode startup. And so, you know, we put out a little bit of information about what we do. Um, but effectively what we're, I'm still very much at the sort of, uh, in the universe of commercial payments and middle market and helping, you know, CFOs do a better job of running their operations, but more to follow. I think we're, we're still very much sort of, you know, uh, under wraps. And over the course of the next several months, we'll be talking about it. But it's a very exciting multi-billion dollar opportunity again. Also, like you said, you know, it's a little bit early. Uh, it's not really clear to me that, you know, there's a big sort of established need, right? You know, we have to evangelize, create the need, create the solution, make sure people understand what the benefits and the value are is, and then go from there. So what advice would you give to other founders? And by the way, I'm, I can't wait to hear the details once they're you know more public, because that's going to be exciting to hear what you're up to now with the, the latest company. But, you know, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs that, you know, if you're, you know, ideas are a dime a dozen, right? But to actually kind of focus on an idea and hopefully build a company around it and execute on it, that's a whole different ballgame. So I envision you're probably the type of person who just has lots of ideas, but you finally settle on one that you can build a company around. So how do you vet those ideas and decide which one to, to focus on? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, come back to the, the motivation question. Idea, you're right, ideas are cheap, execution is hard. Um, and execution is not an individual effort. It's unlike writing a book or writing, you know, doing a painting, it's a team effort. And uh, that team um, often requires, you know, multiple people to participate. Uh, and you have to be motivated. First of all, you have to be motivated to stay the course. Right. You have to be motivated to know that it's going to take lots of money, lots of ups and downs, lots of failures, lots of rejection, lots of pain. Uh, and you have to be willing to you know, do all that. But you also have to be willing to build a team and lead and coach and explain and be relentless in terms of, you know, testing positioning, evangelizing internally, externally, making changes, tweaking, tuning, going deep into sort of, you know, um, in and out every day, right? I mean, you know, this is this is what you have to do, and you know, I think uh, um, it's that motivation. You know, I don't know what, how else to describe it, but it's be basically being motivated, being focused, uh, having the energy to you know um, to deal with failure on a daily basis. So, so uh, outside of building companies, what do you like to do outside of work? Oh, I, I have a lot of interests. Um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a runner. Uh, I picked up a habit pretty late in life. 
Um, but I try to put in 20 to 25 miles a week. Um, I enjoy it. I find it like incredibly um, clarifying. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I love to cook. Um, you know, about two years ago, a year and a half ago, I picked up this habit of baking bread. Um, not habit, but, you know, it's a um, something that somebody presented some, you know, a sourdough starter to me. And, uh, you know, I just sort of went from there uh, and I've just become pretty passionate about sort of baking. Um, you know, it's what I love to do. Um, obviously, my family is everything. Uh, and uh, I live a pretty simple life. Otherwise, I don't have a boat. Uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, I love to travel. Um, family is probably the single biggest thing for us. You know, yeah. my wife and I, my mom, you know, kids, uh, my sister. Basically, I think we, we tend to be very, very close. And uh, I read. Uh, there's a lot of you know reading that i do so very cool well bc thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through um you know i'm such a boston historian as far as the tech scene so just to talk about companies like future tense and memento obviously there's you know still great companies to come uh, as far as what you've been up to so thanks for taking us down the journey and of course all the great you know advice Oh, you know, I mean, thanks so much for um, having me. I think it's uh, fun to, you know, reminisce and chat some about this. I wish I had more concrete things to say. It's just like, you know, <laughs> just a journey, you know, and sometimes it's a journey, but you're very humble, very, very humble, which I think is a great trait. Too. <laughs> the journey is the reward. I mean, to me, maybe that's just the way I think about it, right? I, you know, for me, like company creation is, I don't ever think about it in terms of like, what's the financial outcome? We know there has to be a financial outcome. I'm very clear-eyed about that. I know that even the order of magnitude here, right? If you don't enjoy the journey, then you won't enjoy the outcome. And, uh, you know, I think that's sort of really what it's all about. That, that's, that's a perfect, perfect way to close it out. <laughs> all right, PC. Thanks so much, Keith. We'll be in touch. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.